so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC podcast. We hope you enjoyed our special series called Better Together, hosted by Trillia Newbell. Stay tuned for new episodes this fall. Today on the ERLC podcast, we'll hear an important panel about sexual abuse. The church in America, Southern Baptist churches included, is facing an abuse crisis. For too long, horrible incidents of abuse have been ignored. In light of this, the SBC is taking steps to make sure our churches become safe places. At our national conference, I moderated a panel on this topic. Participants included Trillia Newbell, Jen Wilkin, and attorneys Gregory Love and Kimberly Norris. We hope this conversation equips you to serve survivors and protect others. So I'm going to go ahead and let the panel, if you'll just give your name and the ministry or organization you're affiliated with, let them um, introduce themselves to you, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Okay, great. I'm Trillia Newbell, and I'm with the ERLC. My name is Gregory Love. I'm a partner at the law firm Love & Norris and one of the co-founders of Ministry Safe. I'm Jen Wilkin, and I am an author and speaker, and I'm also on staff at the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas. (laughs) <laughs> hey, Kimberly Norris. Um, I'm one of the, law, the partners of Love and Norris, also one of the founders of Ministry Safe. So I've told them they are the experts. Usually I get nervous moderating a panel, especially when there's so much at stake and such a weighty topic that I don't know much about. I, I don't know about some of you, but I don't have experience with this particular topic, and I don't know a lot. So I need to be educated. So I've said, feel free to redirect to clarify language because that will be most helpful for us. I just wanted to start off quoting a new LifeWay research study that was in BP News that shows one in eight Protestant senior pastors say a church staff member has sexually harassed a member of the congregation at some point in the church's history. One in six pastors say a staff member has been harassed in a church setting. Two-thirds of pastors say domestic or sexual violence occurs in the lives of people in their congregation, and many pastors believe the Me Too movement has made their churches more aware of how common sexual and domestic violence are. However, more pastors say they are addressing these issues from the pulpit, but half say they lack training in how to address sexual and domestic violence, and that's probably not just for pastors alone, but many others. So I would like to start with you, Gregory and Kimberly. In the work that you do, this is, this is a, a field of expertise for you. What would you say, how have we gotten here? What has it been that's contributed to the point that we are at in our society in the midst of this Me Too moment? Um, well, I'd say part of how we've gotten here is through a lack of sophistication in addressing this issue in any kind of proactive manner. And what I mean by that is when we don't have 
preventative protocols in place, when we don't understand the risk and how it might manifest, um, we are unlikely to uh, have very efficacious, effective preventative protocols in place. So that's part of the problem. Um, another aspect of uh, how we are, where we are, is because we have not done a good job, in my estimation, in ministry context, in responding to and receiving information from those who've experienced child sexual abuse in the past. That's our realm of expertise, child sexual abuse, uh, which differs from sexual assault, which is adult-to-adult uh, -adult behavior that is not sought or um, in any way consensual. Um, child sexual abuse issues and the impact that child sexual abuse um, allegations have had on ministries and the church in the last um, months and years are an outgrowth out of our um, not particularly well done efforts of addressing this risk in the past, in my professional opinion. Yeah, I would agree with her. Now, I'd also amplify that just for a moment, just saying that we hear that a lot when people call us and they say, we have a sexual harassment issue. We have a sexual misconduct issue. And we'd really mm -hmm. like to get some guidance. Now, I can help you find that guidance as it relates to you know, sexual harassment, for example. But the risk that we deal with is primarily child sexual abuse. But that even creates one of the difficulties that we find is that when people understand just sexual misconduct, it's, there's lots of different types of sexual misconduct. So just a quick clarification, sexual assault being adult to adult, mm -hmm. sexual harassment being adult to adult in the workplace, child sexual abuse being adult with child, and then peer sexual abuse, child with child. So normally when there is a child injured, that's what we're going to deal with. Often leadership, when they're calling, they're simply, they don't even understand how to ask for help, that there are different categories of risk that's unfolding in their ministries. Okay, that's helpful. And we will get to that a little bit later, asking for practical advice. And where could you direct us to go? How should we handle these different variations of situations? Um, Kimberly, as you've done some of this work, what are some trends that you've noticed in churches and in organizations, especially in light of the Me Too movement? What's discouraged you and been disheartening and what's encouraged you? Yeah, I think I'm really encouraged by the fact that I see the church and Christian ministries, Christ-based ministries, more willing to be proactive about this issue rather than simply reactive. And that's a big deal. Um, churches willing to get in the game in a context before they have a perceived issue. I kind of take issue with one of the statistics that you gave. If only two-thirds of senior pastors think that child sexual abuse is an issue in their congregation, they are seriously misled. Mm. There is no congregation in the United States or the world that does not have 100% saturation in some context where child sexual abuse issues are concerned. Um, so that's, I'm encouraged to see uh, church leadership and ministry leadership uh, taking proactive steps uh, rather than simply responding to a crisis. The discouraging aspect of this, I feel, is um, I, you know, I take four to five hours of phone calls per day on the times that I'm sitting in my office from ministry staff members, um, typically pinnacle ministry staff members, who do not understand that they are mandatory reporters in their state. Uh, and that's an issue. In almost every state in the United States, um, Either every adult uh, is a mandatory reporter or clergy are specifically listed as mandatory reporters. In every state, every adult may report. 
Um, so seeing circumstances where ministries at this day and age don't understand mandatory reporting requirements in order to best protect the child in any given circumstance, that is a discouragement. Jen, as you've worked in women's ministry, you're now on staff at a church, and particularly in the SBC with our current culture, climate, and things that have gone on in the SBC, the way some leaders have responded, women can have a sense of feeling helpless. So what have you noticed among what women are saying in the midst of these times? And then how would you encourage us to help them and to empower them? I would say that women are moving through the stages of grief around this. Um, There has been a great deal of anger, and understandably so. I think we're beginning to move to a place where we're asking, what are the solutions? I think women are looking to leadership, and they're looking for not just an acknowledgement of what has happened. They, w- they want to see grief among our leadership. Mm. They want to see a brokenness around um, what has not been previously seen, and then, uh, and then legitimate changes taking place. And, um, and they're going to be watching for it. But I, I don't think they're—I think they're watching with hope. I think there's a, a sense that our— our collective story is women is being told in a way that, you know, it's fascinating. Like before the internet, there was really not a way where the, the stories of women could be aggregated and heard in chorus as they are uh, now. And I think no one is really sure what to make of it. And, and, and women understand, I think, on the whole, that this is news to men. And uh, I mean, Beth touched on this earlier uh, and that's okay. We're, we're willing to allow time for you to sort of like come to terms with what is an unspoken or a historically unspoken reality for women. Um, but, then, but then we do expect that there will be action and there will be change that's taken so that even if this is our past, it won't be our future. Yeah. So Gregory, as a, a man with experience and expertise in the field of child sexual abuse, but then also as a man who is married and as a man who sees the way that women have been responding and how it's come out, how women have been treated, what have been some contributing factors, even in our, in our culture, even in our church cultures, among Christian men, even maybe in their households? What are some ways that men have even unintentionally contributed to this? And, and what are some ways that they can repent and course correct and be the ones to empower the women in their lives? Because, of course, I speak for all men. Yeah. <laughs> um, by the way, this is my wife, so I'm yes, no stranger to, um, to matters that involve and impact women. Mm-hmm. Um, part of what I would want the men in leadership to understand, what I have seen, at least in the last 16, 18 months, is a lot of this has come in a, in a force and in a way that was unexpected and has never happened before. Mm. And sadly, what I have seen is, is church leadership, especially in men, don't know what to do with this. It's almost like it's, it's something where I need to climb in my bunker and defend myself. Yes. And when I'm defensive, <laughs> I'm not receiving you well. I'm not giving you understanding. I'm not. And there's almost like an unwillingness, especially, I believe, for men in ministry leadership, to just stop, listen, and just say, I'm sorry, just to own what you can own. And even if it's not your fault, just to listen and let someone just tell their story and then also listen in such a way that you can ask the questions, what then needs to change? And I think across the board, whether it's the sexual assault, sexual harassment, or the child's sexual abuse, that is the case. So for men, I would just tell them, don't receive me too in a negative way. Don't receive it as if it's an attack. Receive it as if it's truth. No matter how old 
the commentary is from, whether it's 20 years ago, 25 years ago, treat it like it happened this morning and listen well. Mm-hmm. Would you say, are there any examples that you can think of of unintentional overtures or the way that men might treat women that automatically makes them feel inferior and they may not re- the men may not realize that? I don't know that it's a make them superior or feel in a certain way, but I think that one of the most negative things that I have seen in the last 12, 14 months is most of the things that that we're hearing in the news and the media, whether it's in the legislature, Hollywood, ministries, schools, they're they're not recent. They've they've got some time behind them, Mm -hmm. and the women are being received in such a way that just because it's old, it's not real, or just because it's old, you should be past it by now. And I would just tell you, careful there. Mm. You know, be ready to hear this with ears as if it happened yesterday. Right. Mm. Having a heart of compassion. Trillia, you have mentioned in your story publicly that you have experienced sexual assault and been a victim there. You know what it what that causes, the turmoil, spiritually, emotionally, physically, and, and what it takes to move through that with the Lord's help. And so what would you say to to churches, to members, to family members, what do you wish that the church knew and what do you wish that the church did? Yeah, well, he really started to to say what I was going to say is that it affects us. It affects us and potentially for a lifetime. It affects the way we potentially relate to other people, Mm -hmm. um, the way we see and evaluate. But there's also healing. Jesus heals. And so I think that we want... We, there's this fear when when it comes out that and, and when we t- share it that that we're going to I don't know what it is I can't figure out the fear but I tell you this that woman in particular will fear saying it ten times more than mm-hmm. you're going to fear the reality of trying to care for her mm-hmm. it is a terrifying thing to say out loud and there's so much shame and guilt that comes along with it even though you were not the the perpetrator, the person who did it. And so I think when you are, for the church, when you, there are going to be stories all around you. And as people share these, be ready to have compassion and to, to love and to extend absolute grace upon grace upon grace. And listen, you don't have to have the right words to say. You probably won't. So listen, listen to her and take action where action needs to be taken. Um, The only other thing I would say is um, there are more women who've experienced this and men and children than you would even imagine. So I think we need to take away the shock, know that we live in a terribly broken world, and be prepared. Be prepared to hear these hard stories. And the last thing is not to relate to her as this broken, um, dirty. I don't. I don't know. There's there can be something about this particular topic that hinders relationships once it's out. So treat her, in particular. I'm speaking for women. Treat her as a sister, as a daughter as a friend, someone who's clothed in Christ's righteousness, 
And, and don't, don't all of a sudden change the way that you relate to her because she's revealed this to you. Right. Like the proverbial S on the chest. But yes. instead, the R that's in all, on all of our chests, redeemed. Yes. That the Lord has redeemed us. Um, I want to move to talking about caring for victims. I'm going to ask you, Gregory, and then open it to the panel, and then want to move into asking Kimberly, particularly for practical advice. So Gregory, first off, as a man, how would you exhort men and pastors, organizational leaders, whatever it might be, to begin caring for victims, to provide an open environment where, where women, children, men who have been victims don't feel shame, although they will, but that's not going to hinder them from coming to share. I, what I would want to, and I'm a big believer in education, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in what we believe shapes what we do, mm-hmm. what we believe shapes how we respond. Mm-hmm. And like Trilly just mentioned, by the time somebody has the courage, especially in this present culture, to be able to share, don't think they're sharing with you that they just got a cold latte, okay? Please understand that when this occurred and they tried to tell, no one believed them. Mm-hmm. They blamed the, the, the woman mm-hmm. or they blamed the child. Then they tried to share again and they were minimized. And then they were, I mean, there's a years of then letting that being wound up into who I am, how I have relationships, how I communicate. So by the time this person has the courage to share, it's not as if it were just like, you know, somebody stole my credit card. It's coming with a whole lot of, I'm expecting you're not going to believe me. I'm expecting. And when you say something like, well, didn't it happen a long time ago? We'd call that a shaming question. Mm. It's almost asking you a question with the implication of it being, and you're still not over that yet? It's just get some information about from someone who's writing about this, someone who's experienced it, so that you can understand the framework of where that person has been before they try to share with you. Because we're supposed to be the hands and feet of Christ. We're supposed Mm -hmm. to receive well and be the balm not to be one more place that tells somebody, you know, thanks, but I'd really not like to hear that. Right. Well, and it reminds me too, being mindful of even and not asking questions like, well, why were you in that situation? Why were you alone what with were that you person? Wearing, you, you know, know. Just yeah. not asking dumb questions, <laughs> which is hard. People lose their minds in the midst of things that make them uncomfortable. So did anyone else have anything to add? Well, I, I do think one of the patterns that has shown up in, um, I'm always interested in how these conversations play out in particular um, theological petri dishes, so to speak. And I think that in our corner of evangelicalism, we've had a tendency to our initial response to a report of anything is to say, well, how are you implicated in this? You know, like, what's your sin pattern? It's done a lot of damage to women who've come forward with stories. So I think there's that issue to consider is, are we, are, are we understanding? The more that I started to get educated on handling when someone comes to you with a story, the more I realized I was in way over my head. And I think a lot of churches are not to that point yet. They still think that a Bible and the Holy Spirit is what they need to handle a situation when it's reported to them. And I don't mean to diminish the importance of the Bible and the Holy Spirit, but um, a lot of times we are, this is way above our pay grade mm-hmm. and, and we don't, we need a 911 call, basically, that we can make when we're in a situation like this. Mm-hmm. I know for our church, it's actually been the people sitting to my left and my right, and it has been an enormous sense of relief to know that just by virtue of being ordained to ministry doesn't mean that you know how to handle every situation that right. presents, uh, and having the humility to, to reach out and ask, who, who, who looks at this all the time and mm-hmm. can help me know how to respond properly? And I think the other thing that comes to mind is just that we need to be 
certain that we're paying attention to the kinds of environments where people are likely to come and tell their story. Um, there has been a trend among churches to eliminate gender-specific environments among adults. You know, we don't need men's ministry or we don't need women's ministry. We don't need rooms where you just have women gathering or men gathering. We can do all discipleship together. Um, and, we, and, and, and often there are not visible female leaders in the church too, uh, which is another obstacle in terms of women reporting abuse and, and um, situations that are in their homes. So I would urge you to consider how, how is your church creating spaces where victims are more likely to tell their story for the first time? And then when it's told to someone who is in leadership, do they know what to do next? Mm-hmm. And that, and, that, means mean, that means bringing this whole subject matter out of the proverbial closet is what that means. Being willing to have a response plan. I mean, what you're describing means having a plan. You know, you're not just tackling this. You're not slapping a Bible verse on it and calling it good. And I love the Word of God, but as it relates to at least child sexual abuse issues, certainly sexual assault, thinking that we can treat this as if it is sin, even on the part of the perpetrator, rather than a crime. Yes. Uh, is inappropriate in every context. Uh, And addressing this from um, the standpoint of we can somehow handle this within the church is uh, against the law in most states uh, and inappropriate at best. We are typically, we in the church are typically not equipped to address child sexual abuse issues in a healthy and effective manner on our own. We need education. We need um, background in how to best receive abuse survivors. We need uh, to have a plan in place. We need to have pre-thought how we're going to receive folk and give them an opportunity to address past abuse in a healthy manner. And there are very few churches currently that have that in place, in my experience. Just well, one finishing yes. remark I wanted to make. A lot of these questions and a lot of the discussions we're having, it, it feels as if we're talking about how can we keep from messing this up? How mm. can we keep from stepping into this pit again? And from our standpoint, it's almost like a big storm has moved through. And we have great opportunity. I want us to receive this as this is an opportunity to minister. We have disaster relief teams. Let's figure out what disaster looks like, and let's go out and meet this need while it's in front of us, rather than five years from now look back and think, well, at least we didn't step in anything any deeper. Right. Yes. That's a good point and a good word of hope. As we continue to talk about practical advice, even what, Jen, what you were saying, and Kimberly, I was reading 1 Corinthians 6 this this morning, or this afternoon, and reminded me of how so many churches and believers have misapplied because it talks about handling legal matters within within the yes. church among Christians and and it strikes me as how we've done that we've not seen it as a crime we've tried to cover it up and handle it um, handle it within the church and even somebody was even mentioning the other day how the trend of how people have sent perpetrators just from church to church you know, just pass them off, even at, not just Catholic churches in the Protestant churches as well. So Kimberly, help us to get practical. If somebody was to come, man, woman, child, um, to a church member or a family member or somebody and report either, and help us to think through sexual abuse, harassment, assault, what do we, what do we need to do? What would be part of our response plan? 
Mm-hmm. Well, I'll speak to child sexual abuse because that's my place of expertise. Uh, in the state of Texas, um, every adult is a mandatory reporter. So the first thing you're going to do if a child comes to you and reports an allegation of child sexual abuse is report it to the appropriate law enforcement professional or child protective services, depending on where the abuse manifested. So that's the first thing you're going to do. Um, comply with the law in your state in terms of mandatory reports, um, permissive reports in every state are appropriate. Um, Secondly, you have to have a plan in place, in our opinion, to receive that individual and have pre-thought appropriate resources to help that person get help, care, counseling, whether it's national or international organizations that have online you know, constructs, um, local um, providers of counsel who are proficient in child sexual abuse issues, um, communicating and uh, investigating appropriately to make sure there aren't other children in your congregation who've been impacted by the same individual. Um, you have a responsibility if you are a ministry leader to protect your flock, and part of that responsibility means you investigate appropriately to make sure other children are not at risk related to the same individual. The answer to this issue across the board um, starts with understanding the risk. It starts with education. We cannot address a risk that we don't understand. We cannot build a fence to address this risk if we don't understand how the risk manifests in ministry context. Uh, and understanding the grooming process of the preferential offender, understanding common grooming behaviors, training our folk to recognize them when they see them and report, Um, understanding offender statistics in terms of recidivism. Uh, We've got to get more wily. We've got to get more educated about the specific risk if we're going to keep our children safe. The church should be the safest place in the United States for a child to spend time But in many areas, there's more due diligence to drive carpool than there is in the church before an individual interacts with children. And so we should be the safest place. We've got to up the ante on what we're willing to do or put in place to protect children. So for instances with child sexual abuse, would you say your ministry, Ministry Safe, would be a, a place for good resources and education? I want to point people toward where they can go. They're probably saying, where can I find these tools? I know I need them. I don't know where to find them. Yep. Go to ministrysafe.com. Policies, training, um, screening documents, screening training, trainings for Pinnacle employees and ministry context. Um, We can come handhold a ministry through it inch by inch, and that costs a lot of money. It's put together online in a scalable form for any ministry um, to make it available in Christ-based environments because we are believers and we want to protect the church. Jenna, I want to talk about your experience, particularly with women and encouraging them, speaking a word of hope to them, helping them. But also, as your church has made a plan, feel free to speak into any of that, how you point people, especially as we're dealing with adults too, if, if there's a situation, where can we point people to get help and to get education? Yeah, that's a big question. We, we have gotten a lot of help from Leslie Vernick, uh, Chris Moles. They, they helped train us around issues of um, how to identify and help people who are in a situation of domestic abuse. Uh, so I, I, the, the children's thing is not my, my area right. that I can really talk to. But I, I can say that if there are women who are in leadership in your church, they have heard the stories of women for years and in many cases have felt powerless 
uh, have not known where to take those stories or if they've taken them somewhere to advocate for a woman. Um, they, they just uh, met with, with not much help. And so um, if you are a pastor with a staff, I would ask, are you, are you identifying um, trusted female voices uh, who, who you know will be a truth teller to you and will advocate on behalf of the women in your church? Um, women are more likely to report that kind of abuse to a woman than they are to a pastor or an elder board or something like that. They don't trust men because men have not proven trustworthy in their lives. And so they often will come to um, whatever woman they perceive to be able to help them. And then that woman needs to be heard. She needs to have authority to help in the situation. She cannot be regarded as just often the advocate who is given to a woman who is in a situation like that is a peer rather than someone with an official uh, capacity to speak into the process and then, um, and then get professional help with dealing with these situations. Don't assume that because you took a a biblical counseling seminar that you know how to handle the situation that that woman is in. Uh, And and, and she needs to be believed. I mean, the studies show that that men tend to believe uh, men and that often these women are at a massive, just a social disadvantage trying to get their story heard. And so um, there needs to be... uh, I would, I would say a greater emphasis on asking who are the women in our organization who can partner with us in this uh, to be, be sure that we are handing women in these situations off to people who know how to, to handle their cases responsibility. There's been a big disconnect, I would say, in the church um, around uh, misidentifying a troubled marriage versus uh, an abusive marriage. And that's what I've seen the most over my years in ministry is we've told a woman whose husband's actually an abuser that you know, that what's your, trying to make it half her problem. And there is such a thing as a marriage in which it is not a 50-50 thing. It, it might be, you know, 90-10. And in the case of a narcissistic abuser, that woman is trapped and needs help. And we need, we need people who are identifying that and then not trying to handle it all in-house, but saying, if this is her situation, who is the, what is the best help that we can find for her with the resources that we have? So we have about a minute left, but I still have just a few things I want to ask about equipping children and then want Trillia to end us with a word of hope and encouragement. Kimberly, I can't remember if you said this at the beginning and would just like for you to mention by way of education, the framing issue that you talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. about it framing it as a women's issue. Sure. And just explain that. Yeah. um, Child sexual abuse is not a woman's issue. It's not a women's issue. One in four women, one in six young men will have been sexually abused before he or she reaches 18 years of age in the United States of America, regardless of paradigm, regardless of spiritual paradigm. So does it have a a significant impact on women? Yes, it does, but it also has a significant impact on men. Uh, And so framing child sexual abuse issues as if it is entirely a women's issue is factually inaccurate and to some extent, you know, just misframes the whole equation. It's important for us to remember as we're seeking to be educated and have a holistic understanding. Um, and so for the whole panel, just I know it's so quick and we're going to go over by a couple minutes, but um, how can we begin, how can parents in this room, even those who, singles too, who work with children, aunts and uncles, and how can we begin to equip our children to understand and properly handle these heavy topics, but also to properly even report them if they experience them and to be protected as much as we can. Well, in our family, we just try to make sure that they understand their bodies 
and how they're made and that it's normal and natural. And we don't make things weird. We call it what it is. And, and just, I think that's really important. I think that's part yes. of um, helping kids relate normally. And then we tell them that they can tell us anything and not be ashamed or fearful. Um, and we, we make sure to not say things in such a way that they would feel like if they shared something, it was their fault. So we make sure, if anything, anything that you want to tell us, anything that ever happens, um, you just, you let us know if there's anything that's ever uncomfortable, you have access completely to us. We want to listen and hear. And and so for us, that's just what we do. And I have young children, but I, I think it's been important. And I've seen in our short little time together that the um, Lord has used it. I mean, they're very open and talk, ask everything, mm-hmm. everything. <laughs> and, and it's been great. I would Anyone say exactly else? the same thing. Yeah. And we started that 20 years ago. And it's the mm-hmm. same answer to that question. But I would also just to amplify, my child knew from early on, anytime you feel uncomfortable, I want to know mm-hmm. it. Yeah. No one, no secrets in our house. And I will always believe you. So if anybody wanted to prepare my child for inappropriate sexual touch by convincing her that you need to keep this a secret or your parents won't believe you, mm-hmm. good luck. I'm already on that turf. And my child and I have a relationship okay. with Kim having already had the conversation with her. They were age appropriate involving the, you know, what your body is. And, and mm-hmm. so to get on that turf before someone has an opportunity right. to manipulate and deceive a child, I think is huge. Which is early. Early. Yeah. Early. early. We started at three. Three. Yeah, age-appropriate information, because all kids have interests, even very young kids, and all kids grow into interest in sexual topics. It's a part of sexual maturity, you know, human development. We don't want to give a foothold for someone to twist that interest for the wrong purpose. Mm. We want to be ahead of the game. Right. I heard someone mention um, the other day, too, about framing the question, as Trillia mentioned, that to not say, um, don't let somebody touch you here or there, because a child might perceive that as, if they do, then I'm going to get in trouble. Would y'all say the same thing? More so framing it, nobody is to (laughs) touch you here or there or, you know, whatever it is you might say. Right. If this were to happen, we need to know. If this were to happen. Okay. Yes. That's what Yes. Okay. If this happens, then this. Good to know. And avoid the shortcuts. This idea that, honey, if anybody touches you, I'll kill them. Oh. No, 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 no. That backfires. Yes. Inevitably, when it happens, the child then has another reason not to tell because then my daddy will... So just think through. Don't take the shortcut. Get the information and do the hard work. Good to know. And Gregory, you touched on some hope, speaking some hope in this situation with the opportunity we have. Trillia, as we we are discouraged, as we're fearful, as we're... um, downcast about this. What, what hope do we have moving forward? Yeah. Well, I'm, I have hope just because we've been talking about it so much more. But my ultimate hope is in the gospel mm-hmm. and that we have a future that is clean and clear and bright and wipes away all of our tears. And so I'm looking towards that hope But I know that God works today as well. And so I I believe that God is working in the church. He's working in our people. He says that he will finish the good work that he began in us. So I have hope for the men who've messed up, um, messed this up with, I have hope for you and I have hope for the woman um, because of this gospel. And and Jesus, we, 
He will never let us down, but not, not just that, He's covered us right. and He's interceding for us right now so right. we can trust in Him. Mm-hmm. And that is where my hope comes from. Amen. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. Stay tuned to ERLC.com to hear an important announcement about a sexual abuse initiative being unveiled during the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting on June 11th through 12th. And join us next week as we hear a message from Russell Moore on human dignity.